This is my third week talking about Struck Nerve from Philadelphia. This track is Common Ground off their upcoming record Rattle the Cage on Youngblood Records. As I've said the last two weeks, the record will come out December 4th in vinyl and on digital through our buddy Sean Youngblood's amazing record label Youngblood. For those of you who need an introduction to Struck Nerve, this is members of many Philadelphia and Pennsylvania hardcore bands. Uh, Agitator, Jesus Peace, Payback, Time Bomb, um, quite a few, in fact. And it's just great to see Philadelphia MPA hardcore represented, as I said before, on Youngblood Records. If you're into the 2000s, posi numbers, fast but hard moshing, this one's for you. This is Hardcore Podcast, episode 14. I know that some of you were pretty excited about a shorter episode, and I got a lot of really positive responses regarding releasing the last one, which was with Ernie Talbert from Under Armour on Wednesday. And again, because we have a holiday weekend, and because we had two shorter episodes, I thought to try to put two episodes within a shorter time. I will not make a habit of this, and I appreciate people checking it out. This episode is going to be another shorter one. Not as short as Ernie's, but still short enough that we could put two into a single week. Alright folks, I want to talk about GHS strings. Straight out of Michigan, American-made guitar strings for electric and acoustic and for bass. They support Agnostic Front. They sponsor Rancid, the best goddamn punk band on the planet. And America's finest hardcore band, Agnostic Front. Big shout out to Craig, Mike Gallo, and Vinny Stigma. Since 1964, GHS Strings has been balancing tradition and innovation together by winding electrical guitar strings with playability and tone in mind. Whether it's using round core wire in many of their string specs, packaging every string in their innovative nitro pack envelopes, or using a wide range of materials, their end goal is clear, to provide the best electric guitar string to inspire you. Their tagline is, play with the best, and there ain't no one better than Rancid and Agnostic Front. Go out there, GHS Strings. Dot com or go to a music store and get a pack and tell them this is Hardcore Podcast told you to do so. My guest today is someone who I watched come up within Hardcore from his beginnings with Backtrack and later as a booking agent first on his own and then through State of Mind with Bailey and later as a manager for bands like Terror and Turnstile. James Vitalo has done a lot for Hardcore in the last 10 years and Although a shorter episode than we had hoped, I think that a lot of this covers a bit of what he did and what he's up to, and I hope you enjoy it. So let's rock. All right. We got James Vitalo on the show. I got to tell you that 
I remember Backtrack coming out and they were a force in the a way that a band just shows up and people would talk about them. And I just felt like every other show we were booking at the time just had Backtrack on it. Obviously, they wrapped up what they were going to do as a band, but that doesn't end James' story. In fact, as he'll tell it, a lot of things were changing for him and he has become one of the great forces within hardcore, like pushing it forward and really on the backside of things. And, and he's just got a really cool story about how a guy comes up in hardcore from just being a band guy to the the more of the things that we talked about, especially on the Kevin Scadano show and in other interviews, just about how people end up in management positions. So James, thank you for coming on, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me, man. That's a, that's a very nice intro. I appreciate that. I mean, you earned it, man. I mean, I, I, in the beginning, as I always say to everybody, like sometimes when new bands just constantly come on stuff, my biggest worry is that there's not enough space and that people get tired of it. But really, but really what I learned from you specifically and the band was that you guys were just like, no, fuck this. We're going to make, we're going to make backtrack a thing. And I find that it didn't take too long before that was the case. So, I erroneously was like, oh, this is another band that's going to play a bunch and then people get tired of them. And, and you guys grew to something incredible. But, um, well, I, I appreciate that. And yeah, you, you were, uh, you were hard on us early and you're also hard on me as an agent early. And I, I think that kind of develops a stronger relationship with people when you kind of have to earn your stripes a little bit, you know? So I remember the timeline of early backtrack Philly days when you were, you know, kind of scratching your head and then, uh, <laughs> Then we kind of, we made it over the hump. No, and, and we're definitely going to get into all that. But um, unless I'm mistaken, you were born and raised in uh, Long Island, correct? Correct, yeah. That makes you the first guy on this uh, podcast from Long Island. There we go. Representing. Happy, so, to, happy to be representing Long Island, one of the greatest places in the world. That's a stretch, but I, I know why you would feel that. <laughs> I, know, I, I know that's an unpopular opinion in Philly, but that's, uh, that's something I it's stand the by firmly. If there was a tunnel that went straight from like New Jersey to Long Island, Philadelphia would love it. It's the seven bridges and four hours of traffic just to get there. Yeah, right. Growing up. Not not easy. Growing up in Long Island, what kind of music was going on at your house? And uh, what was the first kind of music that you think led you to what would eventually be being a manager slash booking as slash, you know, world touring hardcore musician. What was the first record or song and how, how did you come across that? It was definitely through my cousins who lived in New Jersey. So my parents owned a deli and uh, they were very busy doing that. And I spent a lot of time with my cousins when I was younger and they were all into, to, I guess you can call it punk or maybe even pop punk. It was like Blink-182 before, Enema of the State came out and like Pennywise and No Effects and all that stuff. That was straight so, punk rock. We'll just call that yeah. straight punk rock. Yeah, right. But yeah, I, I clarify the pop punk because I'm mentioning Blink-182 as if it's like a deep cut. But that's that's the kind of stuff I was getting into and through my cousins. And then I kind of went off on my own where I found some local punk bands. And then I found, I went to a show. It was at the Setauket Presbyterian Church. And it was a band called 1080 that was like, I think they were like a skate punk band and then i uh kind of found hardcore through a lot of long island local bands that at the time seemed like they were madball and grill biscuits to me because they play shows and they would be they'd be fucking insane like uh strong point and subterfuge those those were like the two 
And that was a weird time for Long Island. It's kind of almost coming back full circle. But back then it would be Subterfuge, who was like a straight up traditional hardcore band that would cover Minor Threat and Gorilla Biscuits. And then they play with a love for enemies who are a Christian metalcore band. And then Antarabe and then Heads vs. Breakers who were like a melodic hardcore band. So uh, Long Island, for the first couple of years of, that I was going to shows, I was seeing mostly Long Island bands. And occasionally you'd get um, the highest or scraps and heart attacks. They'd bring like a friend's band, like a down to nothing when they had their first seven inch. Like occasionally yeah, you get that, something like I remember that. that whole, I remember that whole thing when they were breaking out and doing that band and they were like teaming up with those kind of bands. Yeah. They definitely brought a lot of bands to Long Island where they, they'd probably overlook it and, you know, normally, but uh, yeah. So got, got into hardcore through a lot of lo- local Long Island bands. And then I kind of just found my way from there. Got, now, I got the you, bug. When you, when you say you got into it, like uh, I know your cousins put you on the music, but like, how was it to find the first, even the very first show, like, was it a local hall or was it like one of the small clubs near you? Like, how did you actually get to that very first show? Yeah, it was all local halls. I mean, I, I remember when I was still in into punk and didn't even really know what hardcore was yet. I had I was supposed to go to a show with my cousins and they wound up not going. And my mom took it, t- took me to it by myself. And it was the movie life grade American Nightmare. And uh, that was at Babylon. It was just at Babylon Legion Hall, just a Legion Hall. And uh, yeah, I never, I at first when I went to shows, it was all churches and Legion Halls. And that's, that's kind of how Long Island was rolling with it. It wasn't till later when I, you know, shows in Los Angeles are, are weird to me because instinctively weird to me because a lot of times they're at like nightclubs sort of, you know, so it feels, and, and shows out here are fucking awesome. Don't get me wrong, but it's just, it's just a different dynamic than being in the, in the Long Island scene. In fact, that's much like how we came up. I mean, we had the advantage of there was some local venues that had small hardcore shows or actually hardcore shows in general, just um, on South Street. But if you really want to think about it, really a lot of the Philly hardcore shows for a lot of people that eventually would be in like Blacklisted and Horror Show and nothing, there are these shows you're talking about, like the smaller hall church hall type shows where where a lot of people were exposed to it whether it was in philadelphia or even like bob wilson them in the suburbs Mm -hmm. it's definitely an east coast thing where halls play really big into the kind of venues and smaller show atmosphere right yeah that's kind of what i gathered from living out here for the last couple years it seems like when you go further up to ventura shows in ventura remind me of shows in long island a lot where they're done at community center or vfw hall um, but I think just shows in bigger cities, it's harder to find, find a VFW that will let you let kids fucking jump off the stage and do whatever they want. No, it's, it, it's definitely, um, it's definitely something that I think within DIY hardcore promoters have a hard time dealing with is just policing those kind of places. And then especially in this more litigious atmosphere, there's a lot of people that require insurance, which I was blown away when I hit up at a VFW hall in the last year. So I'm like, well, do you guys carry insurance? I'm like, holy shit, they're starting to step up. Um, oh, dude. I mean, I can't even think about the nightmare we're all going to face trying to have shows post COVID. It's going to be, I mean, it was hard enough as it is. And now between the lawsuit that I just saw on the internet and just the venue situation, I mean, I'm obviously I'm jumping way ahead, but no, I, I mean, yeah, I have no, gonna, 
You can, uh, why don't you, I have no idea what the lawsuit is. Break me down. Oh, I did. I just saw it and I, I kind of skimmed the article, but I saw there was a, a $2 million lawsuit for someone who got injured from a stage diver at a show. It was that, um, that benefit show from the dude from vision, I think. And there was a $2 million settlement. I, I, I just read the spark notes, but I, when I, when I see that, I, I figured venues that were allowing stage diving are probably going to be fucking over it by then. You, you didn't see that? I thought that was like major news. I mean, it might have been. I have a um, completely different idea of what I look for in the news these days. And uh, once again, kind of bizarre. This You were the second New York person to like bring up important news information, like mid, mid-podcast, <laughs> that I had to like look up while we're talking. So I appreciate the... Uh, the level that you're informed and um, it kind of sucks, especially with a benefit show. But I, I, I also, you know, there's a huge amount of people that go to shows specifically and they get hurt. And the first thing that they think of is how do I, how do I benefit out of? Right. And, and I mean, it's, it's sad, especially with what that benefit show specifically was. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm no stranger to seeing people in the back end of lawsuits for shows, and all we can do is push forward. And right, it's not the first one; it's certainly not going to be the last one. Now, for sure, you're you're starting to engage in like the uh, like you're saying that some of the smaller hardcore shows at that time. What were you doing to kind of stay in touch with the rest of like? Uh, you guys didn't, I mean, it was still, we're talking like, what was this, 2004, right? 2005, right? This is probably 2002, 2000. Oh, shit, yeah. Two, that makes more sense. 2001, 2002. I know uh, the singer Movie Life just posted that flyer for that sh- that great American Nightmare Movie Life show recently, and that, that fucking threw me back. And I'm, I'm pretty sure if someone was saying it was 2001, maybe, maybe 02, but in terms of staying connected and finding new bands, I was just fully had the itch and, and what i would do is i would i would roll dice with my friends at shows and there, there was a guy that had a distro with a bunch of cds and if i ever won money i would take the money that i wanted i would buy cds and then i would look at the the thank you list and see what bands were thanked and then i'd look into them and see if i liked it or not so that was um that was the biggest way for me just to to do my research and to get into more bands was to i know a lot of people say that of from i guess pre not pre-internet but pre-internet being such a such a factor people would find their bands through lyric sheets and thank you sheets no it's super common and in fact that's how a lot of us found our bands was specifically through that and did you feel like and, and this is what i always tell people is like when i found hardcore there wasn't like this threshold moment where i he just like i am now a hardcore kid. like you like the bands you go to stuff and it takes a while for you to be like, yeah, I guess this, this is the thing that I'm into. How long did it take you before you felt like this is my thing and this, and you went all in. I can't really remember, but I can specifically remember um, when I decided to claim straight edge because for a minute I was like, I don't know if I've earned this. I don't know if I feel comfortable just jumping in. And then I was, I was in ninth grade in high school and I was kind of like lying to people about, yeah, I got drunk and it was sick and blah, trying to fit in. And then I was at a show 
and in my head, I was like, Strader seems sick, but I don't know if I know enough about it. I don't know if I'm worthy of claiming the title. And then I saw someone wearing a Gorilla Biscuit Start Today hoodie. And I was like, fuck it. I'm going to start today. And I'm straight edge from here on out. So and I haven't looked back. That was a long fucking time ago. So in terms of when I like claimed I'm a hardcore kid, I don't, I can't really remember. I think I was just so interested in it. And next thing I know, I'm fucking playing in a yeah. band. And the next thing I know, my band's breaking up. So, but I, I do remember distinctly when I decided to claim straight edge, that was like a big moment for me. Not only is it awesome that you did in high school, and when peer pressure is probably mounting and being the highest to the point where you're actually lying and saying you were doing stuff. What's also uh, very commendable is that you moved to Los Angeles and you're still somehow straight edge with most people who are from the East moved to LA. All that changes. So really uh, does it? I think so. I, I definitely okay. think so. Well, I've been in Santa Barbara for a little bit, so that might've been the transition. I didn't go, I didn't go straight to the big city, but um yeah, fuck that. Definitely not. <laughs> not letting the sun taint my brain. I'm not gonna. No, it's crazy. I got to think about that. I didn't know that that was the thing. East East Coast moves. That's the headline. East Coaster moves to the West Coast and breaks edge. Fuck yeah! Because you don't have all your boys around you. You start hanging around with some party people. You, you're <laughs> a manager, guys. So you're in the backstage. Yeah. The you're classic like, manager in the backstage. Yeah, doing, yeah that's doing, not... doing coke and stealing all the money. That's yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> You know, no That's more. The movies. Yeah, it's it's just part of the game. You know, like now, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Was it in high school that you started meeting some of the guys in Backtrack, or did you start a smaller band before you got into Backtrack? No, I, I didn't meet. I didn't meet the guys in Backtrack. I met John at the first practice, actually, and I met I, I knew Ricky from just seeing him at shows and stuff, but we we didn't really know each other until later. I actually knew Chris very well we actually went to high school together but he joined backtrack later like after we we recorded the demo and he called me one night drunk and was like dude the backtrack demo's sick and i was like thanks man you want to be in the band he's like yeah <laughs> so he like came to practice and met everyone and just was in the band through the entire duration of us being a band but uh yeah i met everybody way later i think um and i never really did any bands growing up i always wanting to do a band and the closest thing I had done, I played bass for a band for one show. And then the closest thing other than that is when I toured with guns up, I would do like a guest spot. And then I was like, maybe one day I'll do a band. That would be sick. But then yeah, backtrack was my first band when, when I was 20 years old. That was the, uh, that was the debate that Bob Wilson I had. I said, I don't remember him playing in it, but maybe he was like in a local long Island band. And actually, I didn't know that you toured with Guns Up. How did you end up linking with them and uh, doing the tour? I actually dropped out of high school to go on tour with them, which was so badass thing possible. Yeah, I I had yeah I straight up dropped out of high school. I, I don't have a GED. I don't have if I were to like if COVID were to put me to the test to get out of music and I had to start from scratch, I would. I don't know what I would do. I would probably call like my guidance counselor who I haven't spoken to in fucking 15 years and say, where, where do I start? So I'm like on paper as, as uh, unqualified as it gets, but I had known the guys in guns up, not super well, just uh, there was a band from Long Island called caught up and they were fucking sick. It was like for Long Island having a band like that, it was a big deal. Cause they sounded like, like a New York hardcore style band mixed with like a big locking out influence, I could say. 
so they were playing shows in I guess like 2004, 2005, and I would roll with them fucking everywhere, and I would be moshing every single song. And I met the guys in Guns Up pretty briefly, where I just caught up in Guns Up, played a show together out of state, and I met them, and then I met them again when they came to Long Island. And uh, the singer Dan messaged me on MySpace, and he, he said, "Hey, hit me up. I have a once in a lifetime opportunity for you." And I thought he was going to try to sell me a pair of like Tiffany SB Dunks for a good price. I was like what's going on? So I asked him, he said, Hey, do you want to, we need a merch person. We're going to do a tour, a full U S tour with blacklisted and crime stereo. And then we're going to do a full U S tour with righteous jams around sound and fury. And then we're going to do a t- East coast tour with internal affairs and betrayed. And we need someone to do merch for all of it. And I was like, fuck man, I'm, that would be awesome. But I'm about to graduate high school in three weeks. So like, I can't do it. I'm sorry. And then I was, I was, uh, later I was taking a shower and I had an epiphany. I was like, I'm never going to get to go on tour again. Like, fuck this. So I was like, mom, dad, I'm sorry, but I'm dropping out of high school. and I'm going on tour with the hardcore band. <laughs> and, then, and they were, they were very supportive. They were like blown away at first, but then like, I'm not kidding you. I had a week to go and I just left to go on tour. And the second show of that tour was actually, at the uh at the church in philly it was guns up verse crime stereo righteous jams like it or not i don't know if you remember that show but that I do was remember uh, that show yeah that was the second show of tour it's crazy no that's pretty badass that was actually i mean so one of the things and you know anthony anthony from me town will say if you have a fallback plan you're only going to fall back and i've actually uh people have asked me through covid yeah. It, like what's your backup plan? And I've, I've, I don't know. I think I might've read a billboard article that he wrote, he put out. Uh, Cause as a dude who played in a hardcore band who is in the management game, that's like, that is the fucking King, you know? So I, I've read articles with him and uh, I remember reading that and people would ask me like, what are you going to do if like live music doesn't come back? And I'm just like, I'm not even, I think about that line and I'm not even thinking about plan B. So no, there's not. And, and for you, look at how far, and we'll get into this, but like, you're not a plan B guy. This is your plan. And I think that, I think there's a lot of things that we do at times. Like I had a really good job in July of 99. I was building cabinets and I had like a real position. I wasn't like just helping out on the weekends. Mm-hmm. And I got the phone call, Hey, we're going on tour in uh, like a month. Can you make it happen? And I did exactly what I do from till up to this day. Hey, I, I'm leaving next week to go. I gave him one week's notice. I'm, I, I don't care about this job. I'm going on a fucking tour or, hey, I'm going on another job. Hey. Yeah. Boom. And, and sometimes you get the call and you got to go. Yeah. And uh, or you in this case, you answered the call, which is awesome. <laughs> so I, I will say that's probably one of the best things I've ever done in my life. I think moving to California is one of the best things I've done. No disrespect to everyone from New York. Cause I fucking love New York and miss it very much, but that and dropping out of high school to go on tour. Cause I learned how to, how to like run a band. And then when backtrack started, it was like, I at least kind of have an idea cause I've, I've done this a little bit. So well, that's what I was going to ask you. Um, much like, much like how we did punishment, but I mean you, cause you were literally doing the same stuff. You, that tour was what probably stoked the fires to be like, fuck this. I can do this. I can be on tour. Is that exactly how it worked out? Yeah. Kind of. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, 
yeah, I guess, I guess you could say that. Yeah. That was, it, it definitely made it real where it was like, you know, and I didn't think on that level, like those, they had really good shows everywhere. So I, I, I didn't think, Oh, we can just start a band and we're going to have people know our songs and all that. But I was like, it definitely did define the path that you can, you know, you can go out there and do it yourself. And yeah, I, I think that was an eye opening experience for sure. Well, when you get off that tour and you go back to Long Island, how soon after th- that you were like actually trying to put a band together? Uh, you know what? I, I think, I think I might have, I might have misspoke about the timeline. So there was a, a band from Long Island called Hard to Earn, and this dude from Lindenhurst sang in it, and he wound up leaving. So I did two shows with them. And I recovered breakdown and we played two shows. One show was at give back records. Another show was at TGIF, which was a classic Long Island venue. And then that band broke up and me and the drummer decided to start another band. And that band wound up becoming mind piece, which I, I don't know if I'm sure you remember that band. That was, that was yeah. uh, Dan from King nine. Yeah. I was going to say the, guy, the, the King band, the King nine band before King nine. Yeah. So, so we started that band and then I got surgery on my shoulder and I was like, cause I, I had, uh, I've dislocated my shoulder 30 times all from, it's funny enough. It was the first time it happened. It was uh, a blacklisted show on Long Island. I, I remember it positive numbers. Oh, three at the where yeah. the warehouse. Yes. The fire firehouse. So people would do this thing where the stage was kind of small. So people would bend down and people would run and jump off each other's shoulders. So at Long Island or in Long Island, there was no, no stage at most of these venues. So we would do that pretty regularly. So my friend bent down and I sprinted and jumped off his shoulders staring blacklisted and I landed on my shoulder and dislocated my shoulder real bad. Um, so I've had a, had a bunch of surgeries on my shoulder and eventually I, I had my second surgery and I was like in pretty bad shape for maybe three months. And I just said, yo guys, I, I can't do this. Like, and I forget how they got linked up with Dan, but I'm very thankful that Dan wound up singing because I think his voice made more sense for the band. And then, uh, you know, they did their thing. I went to California with them and then I came back and they broke up and then backtrack started kind of like, you know, there's a coincidence, but, uh, so yeah, I kind of, I kind of, uh, lost my train of thought on after. No, no, I mean, that's especially going back. Sometimes there's going to be a shuffle in the years, as some of this comes back to you. Yeah. Okay. I guess now that I have the dates. So I dropped out of high school in 06 and did the guns up tour. And then the backtrack demo came out in 08. So there was probably a year between me tour ending that tour with guns up or that run of tours with guns up and then backtrack starting. No, that's awesome. And I know that, um, knowing how quick you guys were jumping off, do you think that, being uh, involved with the guns up tour helped you with like just getting contacts. Like how soon did you start networking to make backtrack, be able to leave the Island? Uh, I, I think the big thing was that we were all on the same page about wanting to do stuff. I think we all, like we didn't, we didn't start a band to tour. Like we, you know, I think the big mission statement for, for, for backtrack, for me at least was I wanted to have a a band from New York that was like, sounded like a New York band that was actually touring. It was, it was frustrating for me when you see 
on the message boards and all. And granted, you have to like rewind 10 years, but all the fest, you know, United Blood, this hardcore, positive numbers. There was, there was, if there was a New York presence, it was always like, all right, Underdogs playing or Killing Times playing. And I was like, I want to be a band and I want to be playing New York hardcore style music and I want to tour and have people not look at New York as just being Madball and Agnostic Front. I want to like let everyone know that there's a younger generation and everyone in the band was on the same page about that. So in terms of network, I think we just, it was a collective effort. I'm sure I had some contacts from my time with Guns Up, but I think the biggest thing is that we were all hitting the ground running and all on the same page of what we wanted to do. And, you know, as you playing in a band and working with bands, you know, that if, if people aren't on the same page, it makes it really fucking hard to do anything, you know? So I think, the biggest thing for us was that we were all on the same page, all had the same goal. And then we kind of just hit the ground running and we were, you know, that was no, it. Uh, one of our previous guests, Richie Crutch brought up a very important thing about New York hardcore that you also spoke on for the most part, New York hardcore bands that are popular are often from the past at this point. And I mean, we got a couple bands now, King nine, you brought up and you know, um, rule them all there's some bands but i really gotta say that backtrack was the standard bearer of like modern new york hardcore for your entire time period and without you guys there is a little bit of that gap where you're like oh yeah what bands from new york are really touring and like out of the newer generation and and it's hard i mean king nine plays but they're not a touring kind of band you know they're doing sets of dates so Mm. you actually I mean, you were the band at that point. Well, I, I had to, you know, I wanted to clarify my language when I said you have to rewind 10 years because I think now you look at the fest and it's like Long Island has, sure, maybe there's not a band that's playing 90 shows a year or, you know, 100 shows a year, 200 shows a year, but there is, in terms of the festivals and just in general, there is a huge, heavy Long Island presence, which is like fucking awesome. And I'm not saying that that's, because of us i'm just saying that you know i think that that that's changed and that's fucking sick so i definitely i definitely would say that uh the influence that backtrack had and it was it was impactful in long island at that time i remember specifically that right as you guys were rising up um zimmerman shows started really picking up and there was that moment where like the the two best shows you could have on the East coast was either a Boston, Long Island or the Boston, Long Island, Philly, you know, like mm-hmm. those are the three shows in the East coast that, a, that a touring route was done because right. of the, but backtrack at a part of it. So don't, don't cut yourself short. Well, I think also Long Island, everybody knows what it is. Like we're very close to New York city. Like if we want to have like when like mental and righteous jams and decimal measures were touring, they'd always play New York city and, and people would go, but I think Long Island's always, and it's, it's never ingenuine. It's never fake, faked or forced. But I think Long Island knew that like we were very close to New York City. And a lot of times people are going to pick the city. So if, if we had a show in Long Island, we would definitely appreciate it and wanted to give all the bands a good time on stage and off stage, you know? So that's, and again, that's, that's backtrack completely aside. And I think that at, at some point, everybody got a little bit older where they felt a little bit more of a responsibility to, to 
make the show worth it. Like if you're going to miss, if you're going to skip New York city to play Long Island, it's gotta be fucking worth it. So, and I think there was an era when that, that was a thing where when tours were happening, they were playing Long Island instead of New York city, which is fucking crazy. Now starting off leaving the Island and you said that obviously everybody in the band was on the same page. How much was there any like debate or like a push to, for you not to be the guy, the role that you played besides being on stage or was it like pretty evident. Okay. You know, you're going to be really up in the front, like helping the band get these uh, shows rolling. Uh, no. And, and to, to be fair, in terms of like the behind the scenes backtrack stuff, it definitely wasn't, wasn't just me. Ricky uh, has, has done always, always did a lot of the stuff as well. You know, we, we definitely shared, the the heavy lifting but no i mean no i don't don't think sorry i'm not sure if i actually like am missing the point of the of the question but i I don't think that there was a there was a time when there was any any, i I think because i was always involved in speaking with you and i think i paid you a bunch of the times early mm -hmm. on that i just assumed that you played that role and i and I remember Ricky would talk about like I would talk to him and he would be like, yeah, we're, you know, we're working on this record. So it might have just been my perspective, more dealing with you when we were selling for shows and more talking to him about like what you guys were writing as like uh, the base of it. But it's actually cool that you right. guys can your roles. And I think in a lot of bands, there's either that person who doesn't want to let up any kind of control or share control. And control is such a weird thing because it's really not control. It's a job. So if you had someone that was working with you, that just makes it you guys were even twice as strong because you had two people working to get you guys out. Right, for sure. There, there was definitely a shift, I think, towards towards the end where I wanted to be I wanted to be involved in the creative end, but in terms of like logistics and and planning, I mean, I guess like the planning I was there, but I, it kind of was to the point where I'm so busy doing stuff for other bands, like this is my my outlet. So I, you know, I'm, I'm less which was, which was fucking awesome to be able to be like, I want to write the lyrics. I want to sing the vocal patterns, all that stuff. And I want to play shows and not worry about if merch is here or if, you know, the trailers packed. Like I think towards the end, I was able to kind of bow out a little bit more, which was nice and and made it a lot more exciting to go on tour, which I'm sure anyone who tours and either has responsibility or doesn't have responsibility can, can understand it's, it's much different when, you know, there, there was a minute when Backtrack was like our full-time job. And, and I was actually having this conversation with someone yesterday. You can, you can tell when a band, I'm kind of getting off track a little bit, but you can tell when a band has to write a record and you can tell when a band wants to write a record. Like if, if you're, if you have to stay on cycle and write a record, you might have to compromise what you're, what you're looking to do. And if you're, if you're just, I want to put this out because this is what I have to say. And I want people to hear this, you know, it's, it's much different. And I think that there was peaks and valleys for us on times when we wanted to write and times when we had to write. Now, artistically, does it make it harder when you have to write? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a nightmare. And I mean, yeah, for sure. Now, as, a, I, man- I, as a manager now, would you ad- still advise like you have to write, even if it makes it harder for the right product to come out? No, I wouldn't. Uh, you can't force that. I, I would encourage to, to, to use the time wisely. Like if you're, if you're a creative person in your home for nine months, I would, you know, my, through this, 
downtime with the pandemic, I've encouraged everyone to to write and focus on music because I think there's a lot to be angry about right now or, or a lot to not even necessarily need to be angry, a lot to think about right now. But to answer the question, I, I no, agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. As, as a manager, I, I definitely don't, you know, I, I had a conversation with someone recently where we worked on a little bit of like a kind of an artistic project and that's done. And it's like, okay, well now we think about the next record and we have a lot of, you know, the, the horizon is so dark. We don't know when bands are going to be back on the road again. So it would make sense to write. But the person said like, I'm honestly just not feeling it. And I said, then don't, don't do anything. Don't do it until you feel it. So, right. And I, I think the best way to be able to write because you want to write and not write because you have to write is to just work far ahead and not, you know, not I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. Not put yourself in a spot to where you have to write to just where you want to write. Cause you have something to say. So what I advised and I, I spoke to specifically year of the knife and a couple others, like, okay, you get a record done and an idea comes the technology is there. Just plug something in, jot it down, write this riff down, you know, like build up, build up a treasure trove of these ideas. So by the time it comes that you have to have something, go through these ideas that you were thinking about when you were in a more creative spurt. Cause I mean, I've been in the same boat, like, Oh, uh, you know, we haven't written anything in a while and sometimes it's hard. So especially with the technology and the way that you can, the bands are practicing all through, you know, different apps, et cetera, send each other uh, music through all different, um, like whether it's Facebook or all these different things. Now it's easier for a band to write, I think than ever before, because you don't have to get into the, I mean, obviously it's probably great when you get to all to be in the same room, but it's not necessary to write to be in the same room anymore. So right. I, no, I, I agree. Definitely. So, and I mean, that was like, when we did the, the last backtrack record, that was, you know, I was living in California and everybody was was in New York and being able to send scratch tracks for me to work on was, was huge. There was no way it would have been able to happen if we didn't have that kind of technology. So I definitely agree. How quick do you think were you um, getting able to play with bands that you were really excited for or do you think in the beginning you were kind of nervous like i don't think people are really gonna be into this like where was your confidence and how quick did people like catch on to you from your perspective i mean we got really fucking lucky where early on we did a tour with forfeit and you know i remember when when they came out i thought that band was really fucking sick and i thought they were sick when we toured with them too and then we were able to tour with Naysayer early on too. So our first full U.S. tour, we did half of it with Forfeit, then a couple shows by ourselves through probably like Texas and the Southwest, Southeast. And then we met up with Naysayer. And I knew Gary just from, I knew him through Big Brett. I met him at United Blood. And this is before, you know, anyone who knows Backtrack knows that Naysayer and Backtrack played together all the time and we're very close friends. Um, so, but I think we, I honestly think that we just, reached out through fucking myspace and i think we just would throw the hail mary i don't want to say we had confidence but we would just ask bands that we felt like we're not hitting up fucking bane when we have a demo but we would hit up you know naysayer and bad seed and bands like that you know so it, it was and luckily we didn't get the fuck you which is cool i mean i'm sure we, got, we had the fuck you sometimes but we were able to play with bands that we really respected creatively and wanted to fucking see every day we were able to 
meet up with them and play, you know, pretty early on, like definitely from when the demo was out. So that was cool. Now on your first tour, were you, were you booking or was it shared between the bands? Like how did that work? The first half, I'm pretty sure forfeit booked most of it, probably all of it. And then, yeah, the, the second leg, we booked through MySpace, and I, I probably tracked down a decent amount of contacts. This is way before I thought I'd ever want to be like working behind the scenes. I was kind of just like at, at this time I was thinking about going back to school, like part time still as well. Um, but yeah, we just I think we collectively just tracked down contacts from MySpace. I, I I do remember a decent amount of the shows that I booked, but I'm sure Ricky did some too, and you know. I'm sure it was it was a a group effort. I mean, it's still cool to hear because of how many people listen to Backtrack, and you know, you've been obviously across the world. It's still cool to think that you know you guys were still very involved at the early stages, and as you can attest, it's not always the case when bands start touring these days. So it's cool to hear that you did start out, and this is how you learned to uh, handle your own band stuff. Yeah, I remember. Well, I appreciate I rem- that. No, I mean, um, you know me. I'm the advocate of DIY until you're you're overwhelmed because right. you learn the most. For sure, and, and I, we we definitely had a moment when we were overwhelmed, and we probably could have. That's why I I uh, I think ha- obviously I mentioned earlier, like the classic manager is the guy doing <laughs> doing coke backstage and stealing the band's money. But that's obviously you know most like most of the time not the case. So being in backtrack and having moments where we were like kind of lost and overwhelmed makes me think, man, I wish if we had someone who had a little bit of experience who could have been like an outside voice to help us, you know, we had Nick jet produce all of our records and he was, he was a manager in a sense of, he would navigate through the, the band's dynamic and band's relationship, but we never had that in terms of like touring or merch aesthetic or anything like that, you know? So yeah. Now, now when you when you were moving forward, obviously demo, you do this tours. It's 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 much different landscape today as far as how quickly bands get put on because as you're bringing up MySpace, you know that means there wasn't even Facebook, there wasn't Instagram, you know, obviously there was no Twitter. You know, this is all still truly social networking. This was play a show, you know the promoter, you shake his hand you get his email or you get his MySpace and the bands you play with the same way you go ahead. And um, in contrast to later on in the career, do you feel like there was stuff that was lost in the personal interactions once social media and the, the smartphone dominated conversations? Uh, I'm sure in the grand scheme of things for me, not, not necessarily. I mean, I think if, if Backtrack was doing uh, a tour where, where we were, you know, I don't want to use the word headline as if we're hot shots, but like if we were in control and not, you know, supporting Bane or Terror, we were talking to the promoters and we, you know, we weren't booked by Live Nation. We were booked by you and Jake Z and Dave Boucher and Nate Zabalba and people that we would see and had relationships with and enjoy, genuinely enjoyed interacting with, you know? So I think maybe when you're on a support tour and the show is booked by a promoter who's not even there, like 
maybe, and but I don't know if that's if that's a generation thing or if that's just like the difference between being hands on with something or being like an opening act, you know. Copy that. So if, that makes sense. For, for for me, it's a little bit different because when when we're I, I like to meet people that are helping us out, you know. So it, it's hard to say if technology has. I'm sure technology has changed things, but for me, it's kind of just been in the same way the whole time. So, what was your first? Um, what you think is like the big opportunities you mentioned? Support tours. Oh, dude, I remember when like when Andy Rice was like the guy. The man. He was he was booking like Have Heart. I think he booked Foundation, and I remember I was texting with him at a show we were playing in Albany and I felt like I was texting Freddie Madball because I was like, imagine this guy like books backtrack and we can do like big tours. That'd be fucking crazy. Holy shit. And then that, I think, I think it never happened. And also at the same time, he kind of transitioned maybe to like less straight up hardcore, maybe, you know, just diversifying or whatever. But I do remember uh, we got an offer to do a tour with foundation in harm's way. That was the pray for America tour. And that was a huge tour for us. And just because that, that was when, you know, we all love foundation and we had a good relationship with them early on. Um, they were always super cool to us when we played Atlanta and uh, we got offered to do that tour and we were like, Holy fuck, we got to like, we want to do it, but we don't have a van. We don't have anything like that. And that was when I remember like, that was the first, that, that was like very early on, like Mr. Miyagi style um, learning how to manage bands and situations because we got offered this tour and it was like we got to fill in all the blanks but we can't say no so let's just say yes and then let's figure it out and then i was working at an underground casino that was like run by the fucking mob and i actually made like pretty decent money for a 21 year old hold up hold up how what (laughs) that's too good just to be like yeah 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 oh yeah i worked at underground casino for what you're allowed to say give us a little uh rundown on the whole thing don't rat uh, nobody out though but like you know no i mean the the deal with the devil seven inch is literally that's just the story of me working for <laughs> at an underground casino run by the mob and the, the dynamic was so crazy because it was it was like a a place where you want to play high stakes poker and the the you know the closest casino is in atlantic city at this time so it was a lot of like doctors and lawyers, but then also a lot of like drug dealers or, or, you know, dudes that were not white collar and the dynamic was insane. And I had to be in the middle of it, like controlling the action and it was fucking crazy. And then one of them got raided. That's where like one of the songs on the backtrack seven inches is about uh, poker room got raided cops kicked the doors in SWAT team, everything like that. And then later it turns out, I I just didn't answer any questions and they just wound up letting me go. But it turned out that one of the other dealers told like the bosses that were higher up that I was like narking out and giving them information and all this stuff. So there was like dudes in the mob that wanted to legitimately kill me for maybe six months. And it was fucking scary. And yeah, fuck that. So that that was a dark time. Why only, uh, why only six months? You know what? I, I just remember I, I played in a game recently and I was not recently shortly after that, which is fucking dumb, but I was 21 and just didn't care. And I was also a de- degenerate gambler. 
and I played in a game and I talked to one of the guys that wasn't like in the actual mob, but one of the guys that was kind of working underneath them. And he was like, it's good. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, it's done. We figured it out. It's all good. And I was like, (laughs) so yeah, I don't know. Now, when you say degenerate, um, one of the things that I've always attested to is that sometimes being straight edge, there are vices that still slip through the cracks. Would you say that um, it was it was something like that, or were you just going through like a, a desperate time in your head, and that was just like the the result of like riding the stakes? I know a lot of younger guys love throwing dice; they love playing the card games. Like, how did you end up in yeah, that situation? That's just so ingrained in in Long Island culture. You know, we just we roll dice, we play pineapple, we play AC DC, and you know. It, it, for me, luckily, it's never gotten out of control. I think like the 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 worst for me was just the the swings of trying to like. There was a minute when I was trying to, I was dealing at the club, and I was trying to play as my job, like on the side. And and the the, the biggest thing was just I'd make a grand one night, and then I lose eight hundred the next night, and then I go up and down, and that was just emotionally exhausting. But in ter- in terms of losing control and like selling my parents car to be able to play a game like that. Nothing like that's ever happened, you know? So I think it's just, we all just like playing cards and like gambling and some people like it more than others, but I don't think there's ever been like a desperation or, you know, I don't know. That's just, that's just who we are. That's just just a byproduct of being part from Long Island. Fair enough. Yeah. All right, so you're uh, you were working at this casino. I'm sorry for interrupting you, but that's just an incredible no, that's cool. story. And uh, where were you taking that? You're going to tell me you were working there, and then you went. To, oh, so uh, so I was able to. I took pretty much everything I had saved. It was like maybe three grand, and I put it into a van to uh, for us to be able to do that tour. So that that was like you asked the question was like a touring opportunity that like changed the game for you guys, and I think that 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 tour was was huge for us in terms of playing good shows and the first time we were actually on like a tour with bigger bands and just a really good opportunity and we made some of our you know still really close friends that was like a even if we played shows to two people the whole time we made friendships that we still have and that's like more important than anything so that was uh that was that was the the game changing tour for us i think it's always cool to hear people like you say that even when the turnout wasn't great, they still had a blast. How many of the early shows were like that for you? And I mean, like uh, we had code on and Jamie said they played often the zero people, but how many of them shows on that tour do you think it was like, Oh shit, no one's going to be here. I mean, we had a show on that tour. It was in Idaho. And I think the promoter, either canceled the show or double booked it or something, but we got there and there was, there was nobody working. Like venue was completely closed. And I think there was two kids that were at the show and we wanted just all playing wiffle ball down the street at the park. So, so like that, that was one. So, so I guess like in theory, two kids came to that show. So that was a, a two person show that we, you know, we put on a, a wiffle ball show instead of a hardcore show. But um, I actually remember that tour being really fucking good for the most part. You know, I, I definitely don't have, we've, we've played shows that have been 
well attended, poorly attended. And I definitely have some memories of like playing a show in a squat in Germany and being like, and have it be raining and be like, fuck this. I wish I was home. But for, for the most part, I mean, you know, I don't know. I, I always, turnouts are tricky because, and this is a weird thing. I'm going to kind of go on a, on a rant and jump, jump the timeline. But I think one as as being in a band, like you think about the responsibility you have as someone who's lucky enough to play a show. And, and I know that when you play fucking 200 shows, shows a year, this can be really hard to uh, continue to practice. But think about if you're playing a show in front of 20 people and you just fucking phone it in because the show isn't good enough. Think about like, put yourself in the shoes of one of the 20 people that are there. They probably, you know, maybe work a shitty job to be able to like make the gas money and the ticket money and they, or they drove an hour and they could have been studying for a fucking midterm or they could have been hanging out with their girlfriend or their wife or, you know, it's just, to me, it's always been extremely ungrateful and just rude to, to phone it in based on a turnout. And that's always like something I've been very mindful of. I, I can't really think of a show where I was like, my performance was based on the turnout, you know? And I know that sounds corny to be like, give it no, it's not corny. And, and, I mean, it does like on paper, it's, it's like, but that's, I, that's something that I do feel strongly about. Like, and, and it would, it would really, I've seen bands before too, where like, they're playing and people aren't throwing their underwear at them. So the singer kind of gives up and it's like, yo, fuck that. You could probably say shitty things about me, but you definitely can't say that you saw a backtrack and I just gave up. And I'm, you know, that's something I'll take to the grave. No, I don't think it's corny. And oh, in fact, it's just a testament to your drive. And obviously as someone who would eventually go on to be playing something like 200 shows a year, there needs to be a mutual respect from the bands to the people that are supporting them. You know, um, something that I had to learn as a promoter, and you and I have talked on this often about, not everybody's going to hit a home run every time they get up to the plate. There's going to be some shows that are going to be bad for different reasons. Right. But what you said is important because you as a band and all bands, you have a bad show or a bad turnout. If you don't get up there and rock the fuck out, now you've lost the people that were going to support you no matter what. You're losing them because you're not giving them the show that they paid for. Yeah. And, you know all right, the promoter's not, you know, the promoter's not having a good night. The show didn't do well. So you're going to be a baby to him. And then what? They're not going to bring it back. You know, like it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's absolutely important to remember. And, and I always hate it. And, and, and I now learned the difference between hating and I always dislike the term, you know, you got to be a professional, but what I learned is that what means for hardcore people is, we need to have mutual respect for each other, bands, promoters, and the people who paid to get in. And mm. so I think that you have the great out. That's a great outlet and a, a great, a great way to look at a bad situation, which I've, I've, I very, very rarely have ever heard you say anything negative. And you've told me some really bad stories. And you've always <laughs> I, had, I definitely have. Yeah. And, and you've always had a like almost chipper kind of like, well, that's how these things go. And you got um, to take your lumps, you know? Where, where do you think did, was that something you learned before you started being in a band or is that just something that like your family imposed on you or just as like a mindset? Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe just being, being wired that way. Maybe playing hockey when I was younger. I don't know. I mean, the way, the way I look at it is like, 
you know, let, let's, let's rewind pre COVID. I, I was, you know, still am living in the fucking dream where I'm working with bands that I, that I love some bands that I grew up worshiping some bands that I, you know, didn't know until I was a little bit older, but there were some, you know, as you said, we talked about some off the record, like dark stories of shitty things happening. And it's like, in order to live the dream, you got to fucking take the beating. You know, I did like, you look at someone who they became a doctor. It's like, you went through college, did your fucking midterms, all that shit. Like, you know, sometimes having a, a bad situation where you're a punching bag or, you know, whatever, that's, that's uh, the equivalent of taking your fucking midterm. So no, I couldn't agree more, man. Now, I mean, you did so many tours and released a lot of stuff. So I don't want to go like six months by six months. But I was really, for me, there's always a disconnect in what I believe is 2020 hardcore into what was going on because the acceleration period of a band camp coming out, retweets, pre-sales, like, it is jumped so fucking fast for a band to like spawn and mm-hmm. boom, next thing you know, the whole, like not the whole hardcore scene, but in, in three days, a band could be talked about by hundreds, if not thousands of people. And that right. wasn't the case for you. So that's why we spoke a lot about the earlier stuff with backtrack. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we could go on and on about this, but really it, it's really just shows me in, in what we were talking about is like you were, you guys were building up from scratch and that, that needs to be said. And I think that, it can get lost in the uh, in the annals of history for the younger folks who are obviously became fans towards the end. Where was the drive, or was there always a drive to be the two hundred show band, like the two hundred shows a year band? Yeah, I think it was always there. I think it just goes back to we had a fucking we had something to prove. You know, we were I, I was like fucking pissed off that new york was deemed like an old guy scene and it's like motherfucker it's like there's so many young kids and young bands and fucking cool monsters that live in new york but we don't like and it's not like i'm fighting for attention because i really i really don't like attention it kind of makes me uncomfortable that's why I, I like being behind the scenes more but it just it just felt like there wasn't justice and i'm not saying that that we I think that we were, we wanted to be as busy as we were because we had something to prove. And I think that that was what the fire was for me, at least. Now, as you're proving it and you're touring, where did you get the bug to start being also behind the scenes? And while you guys were really on a fucking tear, like touring, when did you get the bug to start booking other bands? So, this might sound weird, but I would, I, I guess I kind of analyze on, on a lot of levels. Maybe it's neurotic, you know, maybe it's normal. I don't know, but I would, you know, I was the young guy touring with guns up and I would always wonder like, what, what does everyone do when the band's done? Like, do you just like, do you do the band until you're done and then you're 26 and then you go to college and then you get a job and you do like, how does, how does that work? So I'd always kind of be just thinking about like, how am I going to find my place? Like, I want to do this band for as long as I can. I want to do this band until it's not fun anymore. And, and we ended the band, not because it wasn't fun anymore, but for, for other reasons, um, which we, you know, we can talk about later, but 
it, it was a thing where I kind of just wanted to find like, what's my place going to be when this band is done. So I asked um, that dude, Bailey, I was like, Hey, can I like be yours? He was, he was booking backtrack at the time. He like just started. I think he handled one tour for us. And I was like, Hey, can I be your assistant or something? I just want to have like something I'm working on while, while I'm touring. And I think I know how touring works and think I could be, be good at it. And he was like, actually I'm starting my own agency. So do you want to just come and be a booking agent and like, you can just, you know, we can work together and I can show you like how to do it. And I was like, yeah, that'd be fucking sick. So I, I basically like, and he, he, he helped me for sure um, with contacts and with just like, you know, how to do it. But I, I was able to ask bands that I was friends with and kind of built a little bit of a roster. And, and that's kind of what, when I said earlier, you were hard on me as an agent early on because, and, and in hindsight, I do agree with it. Like some bands should have an agent, should have a manager. Some bands shouldn't have fucking anything. And, and that was at the point where I was just asking my friends, like I'd ask Incendiary, they were like the first band that gave me a shot. And I'd say, Hey, like I'm, I'm doing this thing. I want I want to like help bands with their tours and with their shows. And I was like, if we do, you know, if I don't care if I, if I send you a hundred offers and we only do three, like the three that we do, will make them the best we can fucking make them. And we, and you know, that was like how we did things for incendiary for a while. And I was, I worked with them for, you know, I'm, I'm technically no longer an agent. Uh, as time went on, like I kind of just stopped booking bands for one reason or another, um, just to focus fully focus on management. But for a while it was like, that's what we would do. We'd do six shows a year. We'd make them fucking perfect. And then, you know, I started booking like down presser, soul search, take offense, uh, you know, just bands that I was friends with and, you know, started booking turnstile. And that was what led me to start managing bands. I remember asking turnstile if I could be the booking agent. I felt like I was like asking a girl to prom. Cause I was so nervous about, it's always weird. It to me, like working with your friends in a, in a business capacity is like, is the dream, but it's also like, if communication is not iron tight, it can be, it can be weird. So I, I, I do have a fear of like rejection of like asking someone to, to, to work together on something, but yeah. So that's, that's the long version of how I started booking bands. I just wanted to uh, figure out what the next step was and try to find something that I liked and that I knew well, and that I think I could be good at. Dude, that's great. And there's a lot to unpack there. First, you're absolutely correct. People go ahead and they do the band thing. And if they don't roll into another band thing, a lot of times they just pack it up. Like, well, I did my band and that'll be my story. I tell my kids when they turn 16, you know, your dad was in a band. (laughs) And a lot of people in hardcore go that route. And I don't ever shit on them. It's not like, oh, you're a fucking loser. You didn't stay in. And, uh, but there is that lifer brain that's like, I don't ever want to stop. Like this is what I want to do. And part of it may be a little Peter Panish, but you know, like I also think that as a community and also as a culture, we needed people like you. And especially at that time, and this is where I was going to get into the next part. um, We needed a younger person who knew the bands more personally. Now um, at this time in hardcore, there were multiple stages of different booking agents but one of the key things that James had brought up and and I was a little hard on was it's never me saying to an agent, I do not want to have to pay these bands X amount of money. 
My only thing is, is as a person who wants to make sure the bands that we're booking are being dealt with correctly. I just was watching not only you, but I was watching a lot of newer bands come through on tour that no one fucking knew. And it was now and they have an agent and a manager and a publicist and all that. Yeah. And you're like, uh, and, and, and way more like, and I'm talking about like, you know, the prestigious bottom signature as a logo and the office line email, like we're booking this band. And I'm like, where are all, where is this all coming from? And I'm always like, this is what I do. You know, like this would have been booking bands. Since I was 16 writing letters. since I was 16 to book bands. want to help everybody. But I felt, and, and you got the, because you're a hardcore kid and wouldn't just be a fucking like, fuck you, Joe. I complain to you. Like, I, you know, some of these bands just got to learn this shit on their own. And the reason being is, is you are a fucking tireless hard worker. And Wolf Bailey, my boy, was an insanely driven, hardworking motherfucker. Yeah, so you guys, yeah. could, you guys can take lemons, which there were some, and still turn it into fucking juice. The problem is, is it only lasts so long. And then that, to me, I always look at things like an assets and resources. So right. you're, put, you're putting efforts into doing a band that really people aren't really fucking with. But because you guys have the extra sweat equity to push into them, you'll get them off the ground, but they may never fly too far. And, mm-hmm. and, and but sometimes I was dead wrong and you guys really pushed it. And I think specifically by you bringing in incendiary was great because I had previously had brought them through Philly and we were starting to see people sort of get into them, but it was, it's harder for a band like that at times just to be represented on that level, you know, and as specifically as you know, as an agent manager, when a band doesn't want to be a 200 show a year band, there isn't somebody trying to represent them because there's not as much money. Oh, that's harder right. to work. And so I think that was a great position for you to be in. Another thing that you had said, which is super important and funny, no one, whether you're a promoter, whether you're an agent, whether you're a manager, doesn't have that, can I ask you to the dance, nervousness. You know, whether it's an email or verbally like, hey, do you want to do this? There's always that. And I think you just have to get used to either people being like, no, and here's why, or not returning emails. And it sucks, but you have to take that, just like you took that uh, leap by asking Bailey, hey, can you just show me what's going on? And I wish right. more I wish more people in hardcore would understand a lot of this is available to them if they just ask the question, hey, can I help you out? Or what do you do? Can you show me how to do it? Mm-hmm. And and um another thing is is you had touched on Andy Rice. Andy Rice had been booking from the I'd say about oh five through up until that time, and then he started working with just death wish bands. And then he was like, had his own thing going. And then he wanted mm-hmm. to focus beyond just hardcore. So you filled a big gap because there wasn't somebody from hardcore representing the bands that actually, that you knew needed representation. And I think it was a good way for you to not only cut your teeth and kind of learn how things were, but you represented bands that also did need to get represented. And you also built some solid fucking tours that made hardcore better because you were linking pieces up together and that that is important man damn well i i appreciate that thanks man that's that means a lot coming from you so thank you i i have to say that at times uh for people who haven't worked with me professionally i i will say that i think my biggest critique on myself is i'm a fucking complainer and it's more Mm -hmm. like i have a critique i don't expect the entire world to work the way i'd like it to but 
I always would like to put my two cents on like, I don't know why this is happening or, you know, like, right. I, and well, to me, that just seems like you're, you're analytical and yeah, on, a, see, on a deep level, which is like that, that can be a curse to have that kind of brain where you're wondering, you, you want to know the ins and outs, but you know, I don't think that's anything to be, I don't think that's complaining. I think that's just having a different lens than a lot of people. There's a, there's an obsession that comes from it too. You know, there's an oh, obsession. Yeah. It's like, um, and one of the cool things that from dealing with you early on, it was easy because it would be like, here's who I got. Here's what I'm trying to do. Let's make something happen. And it was a very, you were very old school by being direct, but you kept the business sense up. And I know a lot of people in hardcore always want it both ways. They always want to be business minded, but they want to keep it hardcore. And there has to be a balance. And I think yeah. conf- confidence wise, if you're sharp on your business, you'll be more professionally sound because you're not half-assing it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that there's, and I always, I kind of had a minute when moved to California, cut my hair, knew some people on the East coast were kind of like, you know, either joke talking shit or for real talking shit. But I've completely like in terms of the asking someone to the dance and fear of rejection, I, I guess my big fear is like being labeled as like a, a, a business guy and and I think that it's just like if you're doing shit the right way that's not maybe that's not the end of the world you know and I think a lot of times too you're just what you're doing is you're not you're not trying to gut anyone you're just trying to get there's so many times and I'll roll and we've done this together roll with a fucking door deal but instead of having a door deal where the bands I go to the bands and say hey you're gonna get a door deal like we'll let you know how it goes. Like you get transparency and say, all right, expenses are fucking seven hundred bucks. After that, you get ninety percent of the door. Here's what it is, you know. And so, and some people are just so up in arms as if like this is a long business proposition. When in reality, you're just trying to protect your fucking team, you know. So, well, I think yeah. that a lot of young hardcore promoters, and you could probably tell me I'm wrong here. Young hardcore promoters want to book every band. And they get scared about the idea of having to pay the guarantee. And when I get the, can you believe this? I go, yeah. And they're like, well, this is, and I go, well, what's the math? And a lot of show promoters that are up and coming, I don't know where they get their fucking, I don't know if they just got like a machine that they just roll a ball and it just tells them how much they think a band is worth. But I always tell young promoters and even angels, like if the math works out, do the fucking show. Like, don't be afraid of the guarantee, but don't, assume like we said earlier you're not going to hit a home run on every single show so don't give an offer that it's like the whole show is going to be sold out and that's the only way you'll make the money you need and that's the other problem that i know you've definitely seen was younger promoters trying to get some of your bands by offering like astronomically hard odds to break even just so that way you got the offer so how did you how did you learn to mitigate the better choice and how did you work uh, in the business relationship with those people when they were giving weird offers that you didn't think was right or the opposite. Hey, you were trying to lowball me. Like, how did you manage all that early on as you were learning? I mean, I think, I think as someone who's working for a band, you, you have a responsibility to kind of do the research and, and, you know, do the math on how the promoter would even come to that number. You know, I, I, I always love the idea of giving a younger promoter a shot versus you know not someone like i don't want to burn anyone i have history with but if it's like a live nation or you know young hardcore 
kid, like I, I always want to go that route, but I, I think, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I think it's, it's hard to explain. It's just like have open conversations and don't be shitty. Like if someone's going to offer X amount for a band and, and the, the capacity of the room is 200, it's like, you know, how are you getting that number and, and how, you know, that just, that just doesn't make sense. You just, I guess just try to put people in a position for things to make sense. I mean, also too, a lot of it is you only have as much flexibility as like the band at the end of the day, you're working for bands. You're, you're, you know, in the, essentially in the service industry. So some bands I have flexibility where it's like, Hey, let's do a fucking door deal. Some bands have fucking kids and have a van they got to rent and have hotels they need to stay in. And, and, you know, the situation is just a little bit different, but I would say in terms of navigating, I think, you know, I'd like to think, I don't think short-sighted. I, n- I never want to gouge anyone financially. Cause you know, we talked about this earlier, like, you know, you play a show and you don't give your hundred percent what's going to happen next time. But on the same time you play a show and you gouge a promoter and they overpay and they lose a bunch of money. And unfortunately that fucking happens sometimes. And I, I think I do the best I can to navigate through that. It, it always sucks when someone has, expectations and they don't they don't come to life that that's a shitty situation that that anyone working behind the scenes in music is unfortunately thrown into but you know i, I don't know I, I just lost my train of thought no, for you're a second great. but you're doing great and i and and it, and you laid out exactly what i was looking for now as you're starting to be an agent your band is just doing better and better were you ever at a time having a problem hold like wearing both hats being the guy who's on stage and doing these fucking tours and also being this person who's responsible for other bands tours? Yeah, I think I had a hard time wearing both hats towards the end. Like this is like, you know, backtrack bad to my world era when we're doing tours with, you know, we did our first tour with misery and hangman and at the time I'm managing knock loose and turnstile and terror and harm's way. And it, it was just the, I guess the, um, the, I don't say um, emotional struggle. Cause that sounds extremely dramatic, but it, it was, it was interesting because at this time I have a lot of fucking work going on, as you could probably imagine. So I'm kind of like on tour, but also living these other tours. And I'm like, it was just, it was a weird disconnect between, you know, the bands I'm lucky enough to manage are obviously bands that are, that are, you know, either terror who's a fucking legacy band has been doing this for fucking ever or a band like turnstile or knock loose who are just continuing to raise the ceiling. So when I'm on tour and it's like, all right, there's 80 kids here in Texas. Like if, if you told me that I could start a band and have 80 kids come to our show and some of them would know the words to our songs, I'd be like, are you fucking kidding me? And, and still, even on LP three, like that's still, unbelievable but it'd be weird like marketing a tour and being like i need a thousand kids to come to the show and then like close my computer and go play to 80 kids like that that was the thing where it was just i was wearing two different hats and it was never a thing like i can say with confidence that every time backtrack played i gave it 100 but it was that was the only difficult part of you know like there's 80 kids at this show and this is fucking amazing. But if there's 80 kids at an Oculus show, I'm fucking fired. <laughs> you know, like not really fired because, but you know what I mean? You know, then, no. I, then things are, so it was just interesting navigating like the disconnect between what I was doing in my personal life. And I, I think that it's, it's almost weird, right? Not weird, but 
we're talking about backtrack so much on this podcast. I think that the the behind the scenes management work that I've done has kind of overshadowed backtrack in my mind a, a little bit. Um, well, I can I can hear it now because I can hear like your your gears are trying to click to like catch up to that world. And um, I actually I'm I'm impressed because for me early on interacting with you before you were a manager, you were taking on so many bands and so many tours and your band was literally playing worldwide. I remember time you're like, Hey, I'm on tour. I'll get back to you. And you know, you were working on the life and death tours. And so it's actually a compliment to your ability to juggle and deal with the stress that it took to that point when, you know, you're, you're managing now. That's when, that's when, all right, this is too much. And I think some people, Actually, you know, I think a lot of people would have been overwhelmed before that. And I don't think it's corny or uh, weird to say that there's an emotional stress because that's how our anxiety and the tasks that we put before us put us in. You know, like I might pour concrete all day, but if I got a show that day, that day I'm in concrete, I'm fucking up the whole time because my I'm I'm not in it. I'm not in it 100%. I mean, I think the only way to do stuff like this 100% is to have a level of anxiety and uh, not even paranoia, but just, just uh, you know, you care about what you're doing. You have other people's lives, not at risk, but like in your hands for at least the day. You know, if you're doing a show in Philly, you want to make sure that everyone's going to have a good time. And that's that's a lot of, a lot of pressure to have on you, you know. So it, unless you're 100% fully committed, you know, can't really be doing it. I feel like in um in, in context of what we were talking about, for me, I need the duality. You know, um yeah. If I wanted to be silly, I could say I didn't choose the concrete life, it kind of chose me, but it, it did choose uh-huh. it chose how I would deal with hardcore the minute I would no longer be a person who had the job that I would walk away from. Uh, from 99 until 2006, I, I was booking punishment tours and I was helping Shattered Realm book tours. And then I would later play in Shattered Realm. And it was like, I was the fucking Iceman. If I knew I had a tour coming up, I'd tell you, I, the one guy, there was two guys, my uncle and another guy. I would say, hey, listen, in two weeks, I'm out of here. I mean, when mm-hmm. me and my dad, the, the little bit of time when me and my dad were good, we had a little side business. I told him the week before I was leaving on tour. Yo, you better get someone to fucking help you. I ain't going to be here next week. And he's like, what do you mean? I'm going on tour. He's like, what the fuck? And I'm like, wait, you don't hear me talking about the tour? He's like, you know, like, I didn't give a fuck about anything because tour was what I wanted to be on. But then right. when the opportunity shifts and the paradigm shifts where you are now going to work for a union, you're going to get paid X amount of money, but you have to work X amount of hours. And this isn't a job you want to fuck up. Then I had to shift all the tours to winter. And I never wanted to be what you we, we spoke on previously, the guy who got the job and gave up. So I had to right. balance. I had to balance it with like, this is my fucking day job. This is what pays the bills, and this is where my heart's at. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like this is where my like this is what drives me. So I'm not the guy going home that's going to crack open a beer and talk about the Eagles. I'm going to be the guy. And there, you know, there was a that's show. Right. There was a show that I did for Have Heart and Killing Time at the church, and Pat yeah. had called me on a Friday and we, it was a, like literally a hundred degrees outside. So it was 110 in the building we were at. And he was like, I can't fucking believe you're doing this. And you're going to be at the show. It's like, this is what I chose to do. And it drives me like, I'm not going to not do both, but 
Yeah. Does it? Did it get stressful? And did this is hardcore times get stressful? Fuck yeah! But then you learn to balance it. So, right. touching back to where you were at, um, what obviously you said to turnstile. What made you decide that you had? And this is what always scared me. What made you think that you had enough in your head and experience that you could manage another band? Uh, well, you know, that that's a great question. And I think you should always be analyzing, like, you, you, I understand having faith and believing in yourself, but you don't, you don't want to necessarily fake it till you make it when you have someone else's life in your hand, you know? So, so what I did actually is I, as I brought them to, you know, I was, I wanted to manage them. I, there was a company that, you know, Good Fight who Biggie owns and, you know, they have a lot of great bands have done a lot of cool shit. So I brought it there and, uh, you know, has had definitely mentorship from Biggie to be able to, to learn what to do and which was huge. And, uh, you know, I, I felt like that was the only way I was going to be able to do it. If I could do the guys justice and have someone to lean on and someone to kind of give me some mentorship. No, what's actually great about this story is so far as you've gone two times to people and said, Hey, can you help me? Can you teach me? And that's a really stand up thing because there's a lot of people who would, who I was uh, going to say, they just assume they know. And they, and you said the most important thing, you've got this band's career in your hand. They don't have two years for you to figure it out. And then you become the good, and then you become good for them. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's, that's probably the biggest responsibility to being a manager is that's what you got to think about. And you got to put yourself under the microscope and you have to put everybody on the team under the microscope. And that's, that, um, turns into having a lot of difficult conversation, not a lot difficult conversations. Sometimes if you feel like someone on the team isn't the right fit or pulling their weight, that's your, you know, obviously you're talking to the band and it could, sometimes the band will notice that before you, but a lot of times you're noticing that and having to make a, you know, shitty move, which is, that's, you know, that's kind of, kind of getting uh, a little bit off topic, but no, it's not yeah, awesome I mean, when you, if you, if you have the opportunity to work with the band, you got to think about everyone that you're, that you're working for. And you got, you got to think about the position you're in and what you have to protect. So, you know, that's what I'll be the first to admit if I, fuck something up or if i need to do better like i think i think uh everyone's got to put point the finger inwards and you know there's been a couple times where i've I've had to lean on other people to you know i know that i'm i know that when i'm doing something that i'm if i'm comfortable doing it i I feel confident that i'm good at what i do but i also know that i don't know everything and uh you know there's definitely been a lot of people that have helped me keep the training wheels on me and you had a really good talk regarding life or death. And this goes to what you were saying. And I was frustrated. And I said to you, you could tell me the worst news, but just give me communication. And what I got from you, which really was a, another, like a testament to like how you uh, communicate and also how you receive stuff is you completely understood. And you knew like, Hey, I wasn't pissed off. I was like, Hey, just keep me in the fucking loop here. And I think that what I learned from you in that experience is that a you were I could tell you were getting a little overwhelmed. Obviously, you weren't in a great spot, but what also happened? I mean, you weren't like, "Hey, fuck you! Who, who are you to break my balls?" 
But ever since that point, me and you have had only better and better communication skills. Yeah. Because I kind of told you, hey, this is all I need from you. Like, I'll work with you. I'll do whatever you fucking need. Just make sure we're on the same page so I don't get caught off guard here. And as a young guy, and you were, and you know, you're humble, but you know, you you had the keys to the castle in the regards of you were booking so many of the important bands at hardcore. You'd done so much shit. You could have said, hey, you call me and fucking break my balls again. I'm going to give you no more bands because how the older guys worked. But you were always chill and you were willing to work with me. And I thought that was really an exceptional personality trait within you is that you could receive information without like taking it personal. Hey, fuck you. And I always enjoyed that about you. Well, well, I will say that that's not always the case. And I think it's situational, but I I remember, you know, I think, are you talking about the life and death? I think there was some radius issue with, are you talking about this year or like years ago? ago. Yeah. Like three, three, Uh, four years ago. I I remember that, that conversation very well. And I, I remember the way I felt about it. And it was kind of thing like, you've been in the game way longer than I have. Like, I think it was something over, over radius or, or something like that. And I was like, I got to just listen, you know? And I'm not I, like, if this was, if I felt like I was getting taken advantage of, I would, I'd pull the New Yorker out of me and say, go fuck yourself. But I felt like there was just a miscommunication and it was time to just to listen, you know? And I think that it's sometimes you got to break people off, but I also think that's like, should be a rare, a rare trait. And it was a thing where, with you, you were in the, you've been in the game for way longer. There was a situation that maybe communication wasn't that good, and and I learned from it. So, you know, I just I just always liked how you um I always liked how you took it, and it wasn't like it wasn't personal. And you're hey, you know, and then right away we immediately had, and, and, and every year since that, I think that was like probably like almost four, if not five years back. Yeah. Now, this is a this is an interesting thing because. You had been a band member. You had been a merch guy. Actually, you know, let's go in order. You were a merch guy. Then you're a band guy. You've definitely put on your own shows, so you wore a promoter's hat. You became a booking agent, and you also booked your own fucking tour with its own like brand, you know, and it's now a yearly thing still. And then now you're a manager. Where do you think... Where do you think that all comes from where you're just like constantly driving towards the next task? Or was it just organic that you found a better role for yourself as you kept moving forward? Uh, you, you know, I think, I don't think it was intentional. I think that that management just felt right for me. Cause I think it's, it is a culmination of being in a band. Like a lot of times the agent will, and it depends on the relationship, but the agent generally will, you know, find the rooms, negotiate the money, talk with the manager. But to me, I, you know what? I, actually let's now you just said that. Why don't you break down the different roles? Like explain that, like <laughs> from your, because I, cause you, cause you have the insight, like you know, why it's, you, it's from so, your insight, so, break down the roles. It's so weird because sometimes I'm like, like, I guess, I guess a manager needs to be like the, uh, what do they say? Jack, Jack of all trades, master of none. Um, yeah. You know, a, a manager, I think a manager is constantly trying to drive the project forward and make sure that the band is comfortable and taken care of and make sure that, you know, you're putting the band in a position to continue to grow and do the things they want to do. And sometimes that means that you have to call a festival promoter. Sometimes that means that you need to, you know, hire an agent that has keys to doors that you don't, you don't have. You know, I, I think 
compared to a booking agent who is routing a tour, booking a tour, talking to promoters, negotiating money. Uh, you know, I think from a manager's perspective, you're kind of having a broad scope and you're, you're making a 12 to 18 month plan and, and then executing and then, and then working with the team to execute. And, you know, every relationship is different. Some bands need just a, a peace connector. That's not how I like to generally operate, but you know, it's just, uh, you know, I think a manager has a, has a broad perspective on what the band's trying to do. And you, you work with the band and try to get in the same page about the direction and then you go out there and try to make it happen. So, yeah. Now as a manager, I, I often wonder and I've seen, but how often do you have to not step into the role of the agent, but also like, give them insight to what you want or are you a kind of like, Hey, tell them what you need and leave them alone kind of deal when it comes to uh, a, a tour being booked for one of your uh, bands. I definitely think being an agent has, has, has made, has given me a better lens for being a manager. I, I'd like to think I'm pretty hands-on with tour routings and festivals and all, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll overstep where I'll, you know, like, in some spot, if, if, you know, and you and I have done this before, if there's an agent booking a tour, you and I technically sh- like shouldn't talk, but we still do anyway. You, you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, I, I definitely find myself a lot of times I'll give an agent just a straight routing with venues and I'll be like, Hey, me and the band talked about this and this is what we want to do. But it, it's, it's very rare when an agent will just say, here's a routing I made here are the deals. And I just say, yep, sounds good. Like we're very, analytical and i think the 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 last tour that backtrack did i'll I'll leave the um the geography out of it so that i'm not throwing anyone under the bus but the routing i i kind of was like this particular tour i was like you know what i don't know if we should do this one but i'll if we're doing it i'm there 100 percent on stage every night but logistically like i'm just gonna step to the side and then it turned out that the drives are all fucking nine hours every day to the point where we're waking up at seven in the morning, driving all day, playing a show, going to sleep for a few hours, waking up, driving and doing it again. No. And we brought bands that we were friends with to another country. And, you know, and in my head, I'm just thinking this could have been prevented. Like, and I, and I, I it was such a miserable experience. Like the tour, the, the shows are cool. The bands we were with were fucking awesome. I, it was just, you know, everybody got sick. Everybody felt like shit. And I was like, as a manager, this is my job to make sure this doesn't fucking happen to anybody else. Like that was like, like my last tour was almost like a fucking huge kick in the ass to be like, this is my purpose is to make sure that bands go on tour and aren't fucking treated like this. Cause this is fucking insane. And then three weeks later, I'm working on a turnstile tour in Europe I, you know, I probably should have left the band name. I don't want to reveal anyone's business, but I'm working on a tour and I'm working with the agent and there's a, there is some shitty zigzag zags in the routing and, you know, and the agent was fucking great because they listened and were down to challenge the venues and make sure that, you know, the routing got to a more cohesive place. But 
you know, so this is just talking about like my role with the agent. Like sometimes an agent will have 40 bands, a manager will have five bands. So I need to make sure that everything is not perfect, but everything is suitable to the point where a band is comfortable and not on the road, play driving nine hours every day, getting fucking sick and having the wheels fall off. So the point of what I'm trying to say was the last tour that I did being such a uh, logistical nightmare. My positive takeaway was like, all right, this is my job to make sure this doesn't happen to anyone else. Like, fuck this. Excellent. And in fact, it's important that you had the opportunity, I believe, to fill all them different roles. I think that it just makes you a stronger manager now because you have been in all the different roles. So it's actually cool that you get to illustrate how something that happened with the band would later affect you with uh, the bands that you're working with. If you, yeah. if you had to look if you had um, to look at this, would you say that um, when you rolled into being a manager that you had the same amount of kind of like, I need to learn shit to do this? Or did you feel a little bit more confident than being a manager? Cause you had the experience as an agent when you started being it. Yeah, you know I mean, cause you were like green, uh, you were green booking agent booking bands, but you definitely had experience enough that you think you could have been a manager. Is that correct? Yeah, I was definitely confident and I, I felt like I put myself in a good position to, to thrive. But I mean, a, as a manager, I think that I'm still learning stuff every day. I, I have a book I'm looking at right now about publishing and, you know, through, throughout all this downtime when usually like touring is such, you know, making sure touring is, is profitable and logistics are comfortable for the bands to be feeling good. And the, and the, the team on the grounds handle like that, that's as you, as you know, is a lot of work. So during this downtime, I've been trying to sharpen my tools on like the publishing and, you know, even just merch aesthetic. And I, I feel like as a manager, you're always trying to sharpen your tools and continue to learn, you know? So I think there's still a lot that I'm, that I'm learning to this day when, you know, I think uh, when when I was tr trying to become a booking agent, it seemed like it was very, this is what you do. This is how you do it. And with the manager, it seems like the, the responsibility and the ideas is kind of endless. So if you're not always trying to be a better version of yourself, it's probably going to be tough. So. No, that's great. I, in fact, I was, uh, you touched on something, so I don't have to touch on it. I think that a lot of people look at managers and booking agents from two perspectives. Uh, as a younger hardcore guy who became a promoter, I didn't have great experiences early on with booking agents, but some of those guys were just not from the world that we were at. And right. I, I was always befuddled as to what hardcore managers did until I had a friend whose band was getting managed. Mm -hmm. And I'd like for you to kind of, in just what you would look for in the terms of like, Advice to a band on when they need a booking agent. Advice to a band when they need the manager. Okay. So I would say when a band needs a booking agent would be when your band's starting to draw people and you start playing shows. Like I, I spoke with a younger band who I'm just friends with and they're they kind of asking me, they said, hey, so we're playing the show with our friend and, and, you know, we don't really know how money's working, but, you know, there was – 200 kids there and we got paid X and I don't really know how that makes sense. So I would say that as soon as you're in a situation where you're starting to draw and not really sure on what to ask, because being a, a 
dude in a band and I've fucking been there and having a show and looking at it and being like, it feels like there's fucking 500 kids here. Why do we get paid $300? That's just a weird spot. Like how, how do you navigate through that? That I guess when you're having questions like that, that's when I would suggest getting an agent. And I, I always say that bands should get agents first before they should get managers. Um, you know, and then in terms of when to get a manager, I think it just depends upon what the goals are. You know, it, it's, can you can you uh, can you break that down? Break down what the goals are. Yeah, like, 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 like if if you're trying to be like a band who is on the road a lot or wants to only think about the band and not work and not work uh, a, a job on the side, I think it makes sense to have a team who can come in with resources and try to help like grow your business. I know there's a you know we talked about the stigma of using the word business, but in reality, to me, like having a successful business as a as a band means that you can focus solely on the creative stuff and not have to think how the fuck am I going to get to the show? How the fuck am I going to get my flight to Europe? How the fuck am I going to get merch? How am I going to do, you know, when you're, when you're in a spot, when you want to do something full time and not even full time, do something and make it your priority, but not have to think about ultimately the goal for me is to put people in a position where they're only thinking about the creative stuff and not having to think about anything else. And I guess when, when that's your goal to just, you know, have that be your main focus and not want to deal with the bullshit, that's when I would suggest thinking about getting a manager. Or if you just feel like you have a cool thing going on and there's opportunity out there you don't have, you know, access to, then having somebody who has connections will definitely help as well. So that's, and that's another huge part of it is like, you don't, you don't want to hire a manager who's just going to like book your flights for you. You can, you can fucking have one of your friends do it. You want to have someone who can be logistically organized, but also coming to the table with ideas and helping you have conversations with people you don't have access to. No, I agree. Um, when episode four, we had Maddie from year of the knife. She and I broke, she and I broke down a lot of the stuff and kind of like so much of what she did because she started her own business and that's a primary focus for her made it easier for her to handle the candy corp. Uh, the candy corpse world taught her how to be better with the year of the knife stuff. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of bands want their cake and eat it too. They want to be able to be obviously no bands. Like I don't want people to like my band. People love when people love their bands. People love when they sell merch, they love when they, you know, are considerably popular and thriving but a lot of hardcore bands don't want to pretend to be business-like because they feel that it'll give them uh, some kind of like a bad look to themselves. Yeah. I mean, there's and, a huge stigma behind the word business and hardcore when, well, you know, we've talked I about that. It, I think, I think when, from a band point of view, when, if you handle your shit, right, it just, it lets you do all the things that we're talking about, you know? If you're Absolutely. selling if you're selling band merch and your guys are fucking blowing it at KFC and shit, you're not gonna have money to go to Europe. You're not gonna have money to re-up your merch. And Matt, if you ever want to listen to a lot of stuff on how to do that, episodes three and episodes four, Chris Disforia and Maddie really fucking laid it out perfectly. Now, one of my great pet peeves with the manager class, I always call it the manager class, is something you said. Agents should come before the managers. I don't know how many times, it's not a hundred but it's not four. There's a decent amount of bands that just show up with a manager and mm-hmm. the manager comes to us and is like, we really want to just try to blow this band out of the water. 
And I'm always like, like fucking like, what? Like, what did you just pick? Like, is this like the um, like just a band, like a boy band, and you're trying to like make this band like cool and hardcore? It's yeah. always it's and uh, there's a couple bands that I'm going to be polite and not bring them on the name on the podcast, but they literally were generated this way. And I I, I never I mean they might have played some hardcore shows before they gained a following, and um, I talked to Tim Bohr a lot about that. In fact, when like, you know, hardcore had the ability with some shows to lend its audiences to these bands that would go on to go further. But then people are like, oh, well, they were a hardcore band. Like, no, they had a fucking manager too early on to even like be a part of the scene. What are your thoughts on right. that kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean, that's that's I would love to know what bands you're talking about. Not that I don't think that they exist because they definitely do. I mean, I, I think it's you can tell when. And and I'm not saying that you need to know like the raw deal demo to be a good manager. I think you can be a good manager. And I think that a hardcore band having a manager in a different world can definitely be beneficial. But it's it's interesting when just like there's a uh, a difference between expectations and someone who maybe comes from a different world goes to a hardcore kid and tries to place a manager manager shit and it just doesn't work like that. You know, like I think like, what does that mean to let, we want to blow this band out of the water. Okay. Well then as a manager, you should go make this band blow people out of the water. You shouldn't ask a promoter to do it, you know? So I'm in, I'm I mean, in, that's, there's, that's my opinion on it too. Like, so how am I supposed to do what you're trying to do? Like, what does that yeah, mean? Exactly. Would- I mean, there's, there's so much fantasy in like the artist manager world. And I, I think that COVID is going to level out a little bit of the fantasy, but um, yeah, I mean, to me, right, that, that's sorry. Go ahead. No, I say uh, switching gears a little bit, but still on that same kind of topic, but in a, in a little bit of different frame. You took on the managerial role through Good Fight Entertainment, and one of the coolest things about Good Fight is that all the guys involved are directly hardcore people. You know, uh, the Conroys um, mm-hmm. and Biggie, the man. I mean, Biggie was a fucking merch guy, and look at him now. How much would you say um, just being a part of a good team like that is important for you and then also for your bands? And have you seen bands that you would love to have worked with just end up going with someone who wasn't in a team like yours? Um, sorry, I'm thinking about the, the last part. I'm trying to think of a band that I love that went to a different team and – I can't, uh, I've been very lucky with my shooting percentage on bands that I like and bands that I've been able to, to yeah. work with, but that's even I better. Mean, <laughs> that's even I better than, yeah. Ha- having, having a community and people to, to, as a resource who have done shit before is, is huge, you know, and, uh, being able to talk to somebody who's ran a label and being able to talk to somebody who has tour managed for a while and knows what it's like to be, you know, on the, on the front lines. Cause when you get on a certain level, you're, you're talking to promoters who aren't, you or fucking Nate Zabal, but you're talking to, you know, a promoter rep who has a promoter whose promoters at home and there's a, you know, $3,000 missing. And how do you handle that without like burning the place down and being a prick? So having someone who's tour managed and be able to talk about that is, is huge. So, yeah, I mean, I guess people say it takes, it takes a, a village, you know, so ha- having, uh, having people to talk to and, who have different experiences and different backgrounds is, is definitely huge. And I think that helps, helps everyone who works at good fight. 
No, I think that's actually what I would say. Not only it was a good shooting percentage, it was like like the bands, the bands that you're working with are the ones that you were meant to work with, and that you're yeah, not over and you're not overreaching what you're trying to work with. No, now, there's, there's been a couple of times that I've I've had loose conversations with a band and it hasn't worked out, but it, it's and I'm not I'm not saying that like in a salty way, but I've been like when I have really wanted something. I, it's it's uh it's worked out for me so and I'm very grateful for that. No, that's awesome. I we you brought it up a couple times and um, it's obviously the antithesis of my universe. But going from being in backtrack and then obviously you've dealt with this to some degree, but now as the manager, is it difficult to deal with the corporate entity that is now driving a huge proportion of concerts and venues in general? coming from backtrack and the actual hardcore scene you're saying sorry, is it difficult sure is it question. is it difficult for you at times because you're a hardcore kid at heart to deal with the live nations and so and so because they're more like a corporate entity yeah i mean well i don't want to say it's difficult but it's something i'm definitely conscious of and i think that you know a lot of times it's, it's very situational. It depends upon the band. It depends upon relationships. You know, if, uh, if I'm doing a territory and we play with live nation in Philly, that's, that's going to, when you've done the shows for the band for 20 years, that's going to be kind of fucking weird, huh? You know, but, but then you go to Denver and it's like, all right, maybe I don't have a, a history with someone. So maybe I do something, you know, I, I think there is times when you, when it all needs to be, hundred percent independent promoters, but there's times when, you know, for bands who are doing different things, you got to play the game a little bit where, you know, promoters can be like the fucking mafia. And it's like, we have this festival, but if you want to play the fest, we got to be the promoter. And that's, that's, you know, I don't want to say it's difficult to navigate through, but it's like, it's like playing a game of fucking mafia. You know, you gotta, you gotta shake hands sometimes and you gotta be loyal to people that you care about. So it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's an interesting thing to to navigate through. I I would like to think that I navigate through it successfully, but you know, it's uh, it's it's interesting. It's it's I could see it being difficult if you're like a situation where you're a manager who doesn't have a background in hardcore and you're man- you're trying to manage a hardcore band and not knowing like what promoters to use because that's that I mean that can be such a, if you're doing a show for like a mid-sized hardcore band and you put it with live nation and they don't know who to promote to, like you're fucked. So, and a lot, it's weird too. A lot of, a lot of, it seemed like for a while when like trapped under ice was really big, it seemed like outsiders were coming in trying to work with hardcore bands. So they thought that like, how do we find the next trapped under ice? You know, and you can kind of see that a mile away when you see a team coming in and not knowing like, the important people in the team important you know how important promoters are to having a good show so i've I've dealt with the other end of it so i I completely agree there definitely was a couple times in in my in my time booking where the sharks smelled blood in the water and said oh you know we're gonna come in and we'll take some of these successful bands and we'll turn them into something bigger and my my personal opinion is the band itself doesn't really it's fucked up the band itself doesn't really matter but also the band completely matters and whether or not they can transcend 
from what we would classify a true hardcore bands into something giant and bigger. And a lot of it's timing and a lot of it's chance more so than some fucking rock and roll team of managers. That's always been right. my position on it. Now, yeah, I agree. I know we got to, I know we got to wrap you up soon. So I'm going to run you a bunch of quick questions and uh, your ultimate favorite moment holding the microphone with black backtrack. Like, uh, oh, was it the tour? Like, what was your, the penultimate, this is the one moment? I think United Blood, the, the, the United Blood, I don't forget what year it was. I think it might have been 2011. The United Blood, right after uh, our first LP, Darker Half, came out. That was like, there's a video of it on YouTube. And I think that was one of the craziest shows we've ever played. Um, I, I think I'm going to go with that. Awesome. Yeah. Our booking agent. What was the, like, you got off the phone and you were like, holy fuck, this is so great. Or like the ultimate moment for you as a booking agent. <laughs> okay. I have a, this, this would be a, a longer one. I, I, don't, I don't think this was like, this was the thing I was most excited about, but this was the most animated I, I'd ever been, I think. So I booked a tour. I'll keep the bands out, but Sam Trip will be hit me up and was like, yo, can you book a tour for these three bands? Like, just try to get them a hundred bucks a night each. Like, that'd be awesome. There's this one fest that we want to, you know, want to do it around. Like, here's a promoter's contact, blah, 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 blah. So I'm like routing the tour. And this is when I was just moved to California. I'm working at a coffee shop in Santa Barbara. And there, there's an episode of Curb Enthusiasm when Larry David trips Shaq. And before he trips Shaq, he trips Shaq and injures him. And before he trips Shaq, everyone's asking for all these favors. And then he trips Shaq and he's basically like a leper. And he's at a coffee shop and somebody asked him, like, they say, don't worry about the favor. It's all good. And he's so excited that he goes, all right, coffee on me. And he screams and he buys coffee for everybody. So I'm working, sending an email and I'm, I'm riding this tour and I hit up the festival promoter and he was like, all right, cool. These bands are cool. Like, how much do you need? And in my head at first, I was like, all right, maybe I'll just say I need a hundred dollars for each band and let's just move on. But I, I figured I should do like, the agent thing and ask him what he had in the budget. So I said, what do you have for these three bands? They're driving from X, Y, whatever. Like, let me know. And he responds and he's like, how about $3,500 for the package? And like at the time, like obviously that's fucking 10 times what I was expecting, but it, it wasn't, uh, I, I had a moment of celebration less about like any money that I would make, but more like, I cannot wait to tell these bands that they're going to get a thousand dollars each for the show. So when I got the offer, I stood up in the coffee shop and I said, Coffee on me, and I bought like five people coffee. So that was kind of that's that was fucking like my, badass. My biggest, <laughs> my biggest moment because I was just excited to be able to deliver something big for bands I was friends with. No, that's so, awesome. That's probably it. What was the most rewarding experience um, as a manager? Now, um, that's a tough one, man. Fuck. I mean, I guess this is going to sound like corny or whack, but I, I just milestones and money aside, like the fact that I work with people that I genuinely love talking to every day and I'm genuinely love what they're doing. That's like fucking sick. And don't get me wrong. Like when a band gets a huge festival offer or when a band does a huge tour, like and it has, has a sold out show. That's amazing. But just in general, like where I'm at with the bands and the relationships I have with them, it's just like, there's nothing better. Like, don't get me wrong. Looking at routings and trying to get tax reductions. And there's a lot of, 
bullshit paperwork stuff that is work. But when it comes to like getting on the phone with someone in my bands, like it never feels, it feels like I'm talking to a friend that I, that I really care about. And that's, that's the coolest part for me. Why? I mean, not only is that awesome. I think that it's important to succeed is that you love what you work on, regardless if it's a person or a project. If you don't have the relationship, it's going to be harder for you to feel good or really go all in. And one of the things you said is like, you're working for these bands. So I think it's necessary for you to have a great relationship and a good feeling about it. Now, juxtapose that with my next one, then would there be a time where you would take on something solely for money in a managerial position and you didn't have that relationship? Uh, yeah. And I mean, I know, I know saying a quick, yeah, sounds like I'm like selling my soul, but I mean, the reality is that I, I live in California. I have a girlfriend who I want to have a family with and, you know, better wife. Re- 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 I mean, that's, that's in the cards, <laughs> but, but, uh, it would depend. I mean, if it was a, a fucking white power band, like fuck no. But if it was a band, if it was a DJ that, you know, I didn't like the music, but I met the person and vibed with them. Like, sure. Yeah, like I would. I, I'm not actively looking for that, but I think it'd be stupid to not, you know. And, and I think that you can find, you can always find whether it's not the music or whether it's the person that you really want to help drive forward. I think you could find something where you're doing it that it's not all for the money. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's like if the world was different and having a family and houses weren't fucking expensive. I would say, fuck no. But you know. I, I'll tell you what, I, I wouldn't let it compromise the bands that I work with now, but if it was a thing where something came up that could help, you know, put me in a position to have a family, like, fuck yeah, I would. No, I think as long as it doesn't, as doesn't <laughs> like compromise my, my moral compass, you know? No, I think that's great. And that's important. I think that you can't work. You can't work. I mean, I've told you before, I'm an overtime whore. I'd rather not be out some nights. Like uh, I work at a nuclear plant. I work, I don't care. They'll work 20 hours straight if they let me work 20 hours straight because I'm doing it for money. I don't love what I'm doing, but the money, the money does exactly what you're talking about with the family situation. Yeah, for sure. Um, I know that you moved to California and you work for good fight. I I need to know if they're ever going to get you out at the, um, the violent gentleman mats. Is that something I want to see? Or are you going to be a beach boy forever? Uh, I mean, I just started trying to surf. So, I mean, that's, uh, which has kept my head on throughout, throughout this pandemic. Uh, I would do it. I mean, maybe, I don't know. I, I, I know, I know, I know that's, I know that's your world. I mean, here's the me, thing. And this is the problem with me. If I do something, I'm a hundred percent in. And I, I, I work, I play softball when the world's functioning. I just started surfing. I try to, I don't, you know, it would be really hard for me to do that and and be like, all right, I'm going to go once a week. Like if, if I would start, I guess is is the term rolling. If I were to start rolling, I'd probably call you like three weeks into it and say, Hey, we're setting up a match. I'm coming for you. You know, like that's, that's, that's that's why you, that's why you have to do it though. And I think it actually, I think all the mental and physical benefits of it, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I follow I, up with with Conroy. I think seeing his story and how much has changed the game for him, and I, I think I don't know him very well at all. He he uh, he transitioned out of music um, before I 
came to good fight, but I just, you know, follow him on Instagram and see his story. And it seems like it's, that's done wonders for his mental health. Not that it was in a bad spot, but it seems like that's a game changer for him. So it's, it's been in my head for sure. Good. And I, I like the idea of finding stuff later in life. Like imagine if you could hear Asia Coral for the first time now, you know, like maybe I'm just, uh, I saw the Godfather for the first time nine months ago. And for someone from New York who likes, mafia movies that's blasphemous so i'm fucking mind blown you know, that you just said it to may, me maybe when i'm 40 i'll start rolling and you know i say so do it i i started not, a thir- i started at 38 you got time yeah for sure i'm uh i got a fucked up shoulder though that's the problem is that I'm, everybody in jiu-jitsu everybody in jiu-jitsu, everybody in jiu-jitsu has a ton of bad problems you'll, you'll just be joining the gang yeah you'll be totally fine in that regard all right now now one of the things that i really want to wrap up with is um you you're just a, someone who has transcended. And when I say transcend, it's not like you, you know, you fly over top of us and you bestow us with gifts, but you really have, you know, came in and you've done great in every role that you played in hardcore. And I think to some degree in your new role as manager, you're still looking out for hardcore people and myself included as, I mean, obviously you spoke on it where, you're trying to make sure that the bands who you work with still have history with hardcore promoters. And that's super important. And it's a difficult task because you also need your bands to succeed. So personally for me, I know a ton of guys that got into the industry world and kind of like closed the blinds on off. So God, fuck you. We moved on. And I just wanted to say that as seeing you as a guy who came up in the bands to the age, uh, to agency into this, I'm just really happy that, you haven't turned your back on hardcore and also you haven't turned your back on the relationships that you've built in hardcore. And I think that that's not the way a lot of these guys have gone and, and you're a special breed in that regard. And I know that you were nervous about COVID. I'm going to tell you that whether it's the big venues or it's the small venues, the music is still going to be alive. And that's what I say every time we talk about this on the show, I feel that, you know, water always finds a way music finds a way to come out and whether it's being creative and different capacities and in different ways that you guys are billing and, you know, what rooms you're putting it on, or if, you know, different laws mean you're going to do different things. I, I think it's still going to kick off and I just don't see you ever stopping. So I want you to stay positive through all this. Well, I, I appreciate that. And to rewind what you just said, uh, all the nice things you said. I, I really appreciate that. That's making me a little bit uh, emotional, um, but thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm definitely keeping my head up with the future things. And, you know, I know that the world needs live music, so I don't, I don't, I don't think there's a scenario where that goes away, but uh, yeah, I appreciate it. I appreciate you saying all those things, man. I appreciate you having me. You, you, uh, you got me when I, when Backtrack broke up and I made a post on Instagram, you left a comment that said something like, you did well, my friend. You should be proud. And my eyes fucking started watering. I don't know why it was. I think maybe it was just thinking about like the a, a flashback to the history and the role we had. But for some reason, it, it fucked me up. And you uh, you saying all those things kind of just gave me the same feeling. So thank you for the kind words. And thank you for um, – thanks for having me on, man. This is really cool. No, this is, this is something that I, I really wanted you to be a part of. And, I mean – Obviously, you're a couple episodes down the road, but you have an impact, and I want people to see the work ethic and the drive that you have, and and 
you know, I say it earlier on, confidence isn't a bad thing. Doing business and hardcore isn't a bad thing unless you're cutting throats and you're being a cocksucker. And yeah, you, I, I agree. You, you were never any of that. And I was hard on you, but it's because you came shit hot, going fast, flying by the seat of your pants. And now thinking about <laughs> your degenerate gambler mode, you were literally in like crazy de- degenerate gambler mode. So a lot of these things are adding up, but that's what There's I'm saying, no, man. I'm saying if I started rolling, I'd be I'd be calling you, I'd challenging you. I, would love so it. That's what, <laughs> I I think that's I think that I think that you need that in your life. But just in in, in preface to, you know, like it's 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 not fucked up for me to say like I watched you come up through all this, and you've only continued to prove yourself, and you've only continued to pr- improve hardcore, and you've actually protected some of the bands that we needed to be protected as they've gotten beyond the scope of what hardcore shows and into the managerial thing. And I don't think there's a better person to be doing it because you won't let them lose sight and you'll, you know, curate wherever they go next. So you, you worked your ass off for it. You deserve it. And I just appreciate that you lend us some time to come on the show. Um, if yeah, you want, thank pe- you, man. You, I appreciate that. If you want anybody to reach out to you on social media, plug it. Otherwise just, uh, Tell us, hey, these are the bands I represent and whatever else you want to say right now. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I represent and manage Knock Loose, Turnstile, Terror, Harm's Way, Gate Creeper. And, uh, you know, you can find me on Instagram. I've, I've been actually, de- check this out. I've been deleting the Instagram app off my phone, which has been Smart. amazing because my muscle memory will, will uh, automatically, I'll go to send a text, I'll automatically drag my thumb to open up Instagram. So, I delete it. I download it in the morning. I download it at night. I call it checking the news just to make sure that I'm seeing what's going on and all that. But uh, yeah, you could, you can fucking find me if anyone wants to say what's up or ask me anything or, you know, Um, but yeah, man, thank you for having me. This is fucking awesome. I think this is, this is a great way for everybody to stay connected through all this, all this crazy stuff going on. No, I I appreciate it. And just thank you for giving us your time and some insight. And I know that there will be people listening that are going to draw some inspiration and you're definitely giving us some information on what bands need to do and what they should look for. And it's cool to have your unique perspective as you came up through the ranks. So thank you for being on the show. Sick. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it, man. No problem. I hope you enjoyed that one. It's kind of funny to think that a two hour podcast is on the shorter side for us, but with some of the earlier ones, it definitely is. James Vitale was a great guest, and I hope you enjoyed his story, and I can't wait to have him back on in the years to come. Next week, we will air again on a Friday, Friday, December 4th, which is also the day that Struck Nerves Rattle the Cage LP will be available on visual, (laughs) digital, and vinyl through Youngblood Records. We've been playing them in the beginning of the episodes to get people excited, and I hope you support. Also, big shout-outs to G.H. As strings for being a paid sponsor and supporting our podcast. You can support our podcast by posting when we post new episodes. It really helps with the web interactions that more people can see that we have new episodes coming out. That's probably the second biggest thing you do. The first biggest thing you do is go onto the Apple iTunes store if you use it and rate us five stars, leave a review, tell us we suck. I don't care. I know that a lot of podcasts tell people to do that, and it's important that we do that. I just don't push it every single episode. I should also mention that you can go to thcpodcast.com 
and we have loads of extras, extra pictures, links, etc. Ways to contact our guests, and it's a good way to check out other stuff besides just on the apps and the podcasters. Tim Bohr is our next guest. For those who are not unaware of who he is, he has been a force in the hardcore and metal scene for almost 30 years now. From booking a small show in a small Pennsylvania town with Turning Point as the headliner to being the booking agent for so many goddamn bands that it's absolutely crazy. From typo negative to begrudgingly being told he has to book Marilyn Manson to being involved in so many of the biggest heavy metal bands. It's an incredible story. Personally, he is a friend, a big brother, a mentor, and someone that I look up to and someone that can give me the hard truth when I need to hear it. His story is amazing. I knew when I started this podcast that I'd have to have him on, and I'm so fucking excited for everyone to listen to his story. If you'd like to check us out, go to This Is Hardcore Fest on Facebook, T-I-H-C Fest on Twitter, or This Is Hardcore Fest on Instagram. I am the Joe Hardcore on Instagram and Twitter. I'm easy to find. If you comment, if you write me a DM, I reply. Thank you so much for the support. Thank you for supporting two podcasts in 10 days. And hopefully we won't have to do that. Unless you guys really like it. Maybe I'll do more. Who knows? Can't wait for next week for Tim Boar. Take care.